Ephesians 2, 11 to 16. In your pew Bible, it's page 976. Reading from the English Standard Version. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. This is the word of God. Thank you, brother. If you're wondering what is he going to say about all of that, I'm wondering too. Uh, we're going to do our best to make sense of, of that this morning here together. We've called this series so far Visible Grace, but we haven't really talked about why we've called it Visible Grace. <clears throat> so far, we've explored this grace piece, I think, pretty exhaustively, especially last week. But what about the visible piece? Why are we calling it visible grace? When I say visible grace, I mean that grace is meant, when it's had its way with us fully, to change us, to transform us from the inside all the way to the outside, to create visible, tangible results in our real lives. So if you can picture an iceberg with me, <clears throat> You know, probably know, that icebergs start out completely submerged underneath the water. They are attached to the frozen land that's underneath the ocean. But eventually they break free of the land, and then consequently they break through the surface of the water. It's only at that point that we realize that there was this massive thing underneath the water the entire time. So you can kind of think of Ephesians, the letter to the Ephesians, like an iceberg, We've only explored this gigantic underwater piece that's grace, but it's not visible from the surface quite yet. Like what effect, what real life effect does it have in our lives? Well, the structure of the book of Ephesians is such that the first three chapters, one, two, and three, are oriented around grace, all the stuff that's underneath the water. And then the final three chapters are designed to show you what your life your life will look like when you've been thoroughly changed by grace. What will bubble up to the surface? How will that affect your real life? So today, even before we get to chapter 4, when all of the surface stuff floats to the top, uh, we're going to get a little hint of what is jutting out of the water with this iceberg analogy. We'll have to wait until chapter 4 to see the full scope of the iceberg and what it looks like, uh, but we're going to see a little bit today. And we're going to see how the gospel impacts our relationships with one another inside the church. And what we're going to see is that the gospel levels the playing field among us completely. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, which is what we covered last week together, Paul was dealing with how we can be reconciled with God. So vertical reconciliation. 
But now he's turning to horizontal reconciliation, how we can be reconciled with one another and live together in harmony and peace with each other. And if I can just say this from the outset, I mean, you could probably tell just by reading those verses when, with Mel when he read them that this is a little bit of a complicated argument that Paul is making here. Last week, we nerded out on grammar a little, week, a little bit, and this week, I'm just warning you, we are going to nerd out on history and even on anatomy this week, okay? So hang with me. You've been warned. I will say this, too. I don't know if I should say this, but somehow uh, Miriam was teaching in ladies' Bible study this last week. Miriam's my wife, if you're new here. She was teaching in ladies' Bible study, and she was in Acts 8, uh, where she had to teach on uh, the Ethiopian eunuch. And here I am this Sunday, the same week, teaching on uh, circumcision. Um, So conversations have been something else in our house this week. (laughs) I'll leave it at that. Um, If you don't know what those two things are, you can Google it, okay? Or maybe I wouldn't recommend that. Um, There's lots of nurses here. Like Miriam said, they'll talk about anything. That's one of the nurses. Um, There is a rich, complex argument being made here in Ephesians, the back half of Ephesians 2. So we're going to have to work hard together to untangle this. And I'll say this too, if you do the hard work this week, it's going to pay off big time next week. So work hard with me this week, we'll enjoy the fruits of that labor a little bit more next week. But we've got to understand the history of what is packed into these verses. And we're actually just going to focus on 11 to 13 uh, this morning. We have to understand the history. As Westerners, and especially as Americans, it's hard to imagine ourselves being anything other than privileged, entitled to privilege. We don't imagine ourselves as being excluded from anything good if we only work hard for it, right? This is the American dream. We can be anything we want to be, do anything we want to do as long as we work hard enough for it, right? Simply by virtue of being born an American. Well, Paul paints a picture here of privilege that we simply do not have access to by virtue of our birth. At least most of us don't have access to this privilege. Paul proves this to us by contrasting the privilege of the Jews with the lack of privilege afforded to the Gentiles. Jews versus Gentiles. And Gentiles, if you're wondering, is just like an all-inclusive umbrella term that refers to everyone who isn't a Jew. Jews and not Jews is basically what the contrast here is. And I think it describes almost everyone in here this morning. We would all be considered Gentiles, not Jews in here. When the Bible speaks of Gentiles, it's speaking of you and me. And I want to say that the shock value and the scandal of these three verses, 11 to 13, is probably lost on us today, thousands of years after they were first penned. But they were shocking and they were scandalous when they were first written and read. These ideas would have slapped Jew and Gentile across the head alike, and it would have been jaw-droppingly controversial to read these things and then to believe these things. So we need to back way out of Ephesians to get a real sense of the cultural and then the historical realities that are packed in to these verses in Ephesians 2. So we're going to do something unique today, and then we're going to actually spend more time outside of Ephesians 2 than we are going to spend inside of Ephesians 2. But like I said, this will help us especially next week as we will see more of the iceberg sort of breaking the surface and seeing what the point of all of this is. So the situation that Paul is addressing here is a centuries-long divide between ethnic Jews and all of the other ethnic groups that were there in the, uh, the Near East. 
And these people, again, were called Gentiles. And this divide is probably too tame of a term for us this morning. There's like an all-out hostility between these two groups, Jews and Gentiles. And the hostility relates to privilege. Jews got privilege and no one else did. So as you can imagine, this would create uh, some hostility. So out of all the peoples on the earth, God chose Israel for his own special possession. Deuteronomy 14, the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his own possession. Out of all the peoples that are on the face of the earth, he chooses Israel. Next, out of all the peoples on the earth, God chose Israel to give his special promises. Genesis 12, now the Lord said to Abram, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. Next, out of all the peoples of the earth, God chose Israel to be his people in a unique way. Exodus 6, I will take for you my people, take you for my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. So out of all the peoples on the earth, God chose Israel to bring about the Redeemer and all of redemption. This is from Romans 9. They are Israelites. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. And so when Jesus is preaching the gospel to the woman at the well, he reinforces this very thing. John 4, Jesus said to her, you worship what you don't know, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. So from all of these privileges, Paul's Gentile readers, that's us, from all of these privileges, we have been excluded. If you are a Gentile and not a Jew this morning, all of those things pertain to ethnic Jews. All of this privilege with God and from God created an arrogance in the Jews. As you can imagine, they got all this stuff that no one else did. And in some Gentiles, it created a jealousy. They get it and we don't. So what we have to keep in mind here in Ephesians 2 when we finally get back to it, is that the divide between Jew and Gentile is not small or simple. It is gigantic and complex in at least three ways. Religious divide, cultural divide, and a racial divide. It was a religious divide. The Jews knew the one true God, and the the Christian Jews knew his son, the Messiah Jesus. So it was religious. It was also cultural with tons of ceremonies and practices like circumcision and dietary regulations and rules for cleanliness and a million other things. These were all designed to set the Jews apart from the other nations around them. It was designed to do this, to be divisionary. And the divide third was racial too, religious, cultural, and racial. Ethnic Jews received these promises from God. Not all races, just this one race produced an ethnic racial divide. So all of this privilege for the Jews had stirred up this racial pride in many of the Israelites. You can even see Paul addressing it in verse 11. Look with me, if you will. He says, look, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcised by those called the circumcised. So the circumcised there are the Jews looking at the Gentiles, and, and they're looking at the Gentiles and saying, you're the uncircumcised. So like thousands of years later, On our side of history, it's kind of hard to conceive of what is going on here. First, apparently it wasn't awkward to throw around circumcision in just normal conversation. That's one difference between us and them. Second, it's hard for us to imagine just how truly offensive this was. But it was. It was a slam for a Jew to call someone uncircumcised because it meant that person was outside the bounds of God's covenant promises. It meant that they were not a recipient of God's promises. See, circumcision was the outward symbol 
of God's covenant sign with his people. God's covenant with his people. So look at Genesis 17 on screen. God says, And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring and after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you, and I will be their God. And now what was the sign of this promise to these people from God? I will be your God. What's the, what's the sign? How, did, how does this covenant ratify it? This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. So circumcision, in effect, was a sign of God's covenant to his people. Back then, anyone not circumcised was alienated from the covenant commitment from God, from God's promises. So in, the, in case you're wondering, we won't go too deeply into this today, but the, 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 the symbolism of circumcision was just designed to be a picture of us as God's people be, being cut free from sin. It was the sign that recalled the great gospel promise to Abraham of his covenant, of God's covenant with Abraham and his people. And so this just became an insulting term that you see there in verse 11. The circumcision people were calling the Gentiles in Ephesus the uncircumcision people, right? You can read that kind of tone into it a little bit. This seems like a, seems like a, a really silly slam to us here in 2021, but it was a big dig back then. Just a, a really big insult. It was a way of looking down on the Gentiles for their lack of privilege. God didn't make a covenant with the Gentiles. He made it with the Jews. So think back to September 11, 2001, if you were living, and try to crawl into the minds of those terrorists that morning. Imagine the hatred those men had to have in their hearts for the West, for America, as they boarded American Airlines Flight 11 and United 93, and United 175 on that terrible morning. Imagine what they must have felt in their hearts, and you might get a little bit of an idea of the level of animosity between these two groups, Jew and Gentile. It may be the equivalent of like the emotional baggage of calling someone the N-word today. But mind-blowingly, it's happening within the bounds of the church. I mean, these are Christians belittling other Christians with insulting language because the Jewish Christians enjoy, in their minds, more Godward privilege than the Gentile Christians. Now, if you're still not sold on this being a big deal, let me show you how this privilege played itself out. And I never saw this text in Acts like I did as clearly as I did this week, looking back through the lens of Ephesians 2. Um, but this privilege played itself out even in the heart of Peter, himself for years throughout almost the first third of the book of Acts. So if you were to ask Jewish Christians way back in the first century who Jesus was, they would say, Jesus is the king of the Jews who died for the Jews to rescue the Jews from the penalty of their sin. That's what Jewish Christians would say. They had this really narrow view of limited atonement in that they believed that if you wanted to be saved... You can be saved by converting over to all of the ethnic stuff that Jews did. So to their minds, because Christ came to save the Jews, the only way you can get in is to become one of the Jews by becoming a Jew, as it were. How did you become a Jew to their minds? You get in on this gig of salvation if you adopt the Sabbath and the circumcision and go to all the festivals and so on. If you do all this, plus you put your faith 
in Jesus, well, then you're in. If you're not in, if you do not become a Jew, as it were, you've got no salvation. So to their minds, it was Jewishness plus Jesus equals salvation. Jewishness plus Jesus equals salvation. And even as late as Acts 10, years after Pentecost, we've still got Peter thinking and believing that his race is superior and the sole recipient of salvation. So if you were to read Acts 10 and 11 carefully, you can tell that it's just now beginning to dawn on him the scope, dawn on Peter the scope of what Jesus has accomplished in his death and resurrection. That Jesus came for the nations, not just for the nation. It's just now dawning on Peter. So he has this vision from God in a dream that that he should go and preach the gospel to this particular Gentile. His name was Cornelius. His, his friends probably called him Corndog. Um, so he, he, I have a friend whose name is Corndog. I, I shouldn't have even brought that up this morning. But he, he, he shows up to Corndog's house, and he knocks on the door. And Cornelius opens the door. And this is Acts 10, 20, 28. You can follow along on screen. And, and Peter said to them after Cornelius opens the door, you yourselves know how unlawful, and this, this was God's law, it was, it, it was not God's law. It was, a, it was a made-up law by man when he says how it's unlawful. But he says, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit with anyone of another nation. And so you're getting a sense for the depth of the racial superiority that Jews felt right here. That's unlawful for me to hang out with anyone from any other nation. Um, So you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So he's saying, I would never be coming to you to tell you about Jesus. I'd never even darken your doorway, man. I have nothing to do with you. I mean, Peter was a racist in a big way. Until the gospel of Jesus Christ squirmed its way down into his bones. The good news that Jesus' blood is sufficient and intended for every race finally took hold of Peter's heart here in these chapters. And I think knowing that Peter did this should cause us to do some introspection too. It is possible to be blood-bought and blood-washed and still have some cultural blinders on our eyes that are causing us to miss out on some beautiful and important truths. Just worth evaluating in your own heart this morning. See where you're at with the Lord on that. And so because of this call on his life, Peter, uh, this call on his life through this vision that God gave to Peter, he preaches the gospel to Cornelius and the other Gentiles in his house. And what do you know? They believe. They believe the gospel. And in that moment, something crazy happens. The Holy Spirit descends on the living room as they're all sitting there on the couch. And they begin to speak in tongues to one another. And Peter's just blown away. He cannot believe this. The gospel to the Gentiles, to these dogs, to these unclean people who were beneath them, him who were less than him. But here is God saving them without doing all the Jew things, right? Without circumcision, without the dietary laws and the festivals. They just believe and they're in. And the Spirit descends on them right there. For the first time in history, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, became a recognized reality right here in Acts 10 and 11. And so Peter thinks to himself, 
Who are we to reject the Gentiles if God, through Jesus, has embraced them? And so he baptizes them right there. And the story continues in chapter 11 where uh, uh, when Peter's Jewish colleagues, they want to know where he's been and what he's been up to. You remember, he had, to tra- he had a vision. He traveled to go see Cornelius, and his friends back home were like, yo, Pete, where you been? What you been doing? Word on the street is that you've been hanging out with the Gentiles, with the uncircumcised, with the dogs. What could possibly possess you to do this, man? Why you been with the Gentiles? And Peter's like, look, I was just doing what God told me to do, all right? He gave me this vision. I went to go see Cornelius. I preached the gospel. And get this, they believed. They believed the gospel. And then even more than that, after they believed, the Spirit descended on the Gentiles, just like he did back on us Jews back at Pentecost. They spoke in tongues just like us. And so Peter says, you can follow along on screen in Acts 11, if then God gave them the same gift as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? And so all of Peter's colleagues at this point are perplexed and they are shocked. Look at what the next verse says. When they heard these things, they fell silent. Their jaws hit the floor. God was rescuing people that were not of Jewish descent. Wait, God allowing unclean Gentiles into the kingdom without them crossing over the threshold into Judaism first and doing all the Jewish things? It was nearly like inconscionable, unconscionable to them, unbelievable. Thankfully, in a powerful moment of racial reconciliation, verse 19 says that they rejoiced. It's the second half of verse 18. And they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. We have to come to Ephesians 2 with this kind of understanding. We've got to know that the hostility between these two people groups was to the nines. It was intensely hostile, and so hostile that the Jewish Christians, Peter himself, one of the authors of the New Testament, Peter himself didn't think that Gentiles could or should be allowed into the kingdom, be saved. So keep this baked into your mind as we go back and look at Ephesians 2. Look at Ephesians 2, through the lens of Acts Acts 10 and 11. And the command here in Ephesians 2 is really curious. You can see it in the second word of verse 11. Look at the second word of verse 11. It just says, remember. That's the command. Remember. I do not know how to moonwalk. Not at all. But I once did the next best thing, and I read a book called Moonwalking with Einstein. Um, It was a New York Times bestseller back in 2011. It had, surprisingly, nothing to do with moonwalking. It didn't help me with that. Um, But its subtitle, I think, will help you understand the point of the book. It was this, Moonwalking with Einstein, the art and science of remembering everything. I read it because I have a terrible memory, and I wanted to fix that. But in it, the author makes some really uh, helpful, great observations about our memories. You can follow along with this quote on screen. Who we are and what we do is fundamentally a function of what we remember. Our memories make us who we are. They are the seat of our values and the source of our character. So, he says, if you want to live a memorable life, you have to be the kind of person who remembers to remember. So, in verse 11, where the call is to remember, Paul is saying that if we want to, in our hearts, adore the gospel of grace... 
We've got to be a people who remember to remember. We've got to remember what our lives looked like before grace took hold of us. And we can be sure that Paul does not mean, well, uh, we can be sure that Paul does not mean remember merely in the sense of like, just, just bring it to mind. That's not what he's saying here. Surely he means, let it grip you, let it shape you, let it move you. From the memory deep in your bones, feel the danger that you have been saved from. Remember who you were. Just recalling facts to our heads will be of no spiritual benefit if these memories do not travel down into our hearts. Paul is calling us to remember what we have been saved from. I read this description this past week, and I'm not sure I can improve upon it, so I'm just going to throw it on screen. Almost all Christians can list what they have been saved from. You're probably in that camp if you ask them. But they don't feel it. It doesn't move them. It's not real to them. It's like the lady in the circus who spins on that wheel while the knife thrower pretends to throw knives around her. If you ask her at the end, oh, don't you feel glad that's over? Aren't you happy you're still alive? She says, eh, it's just a trick. The knives pop out of the wheel. What's to get excited about? It's just a fake threat. And so it seems to be with many Christians. If they remember their plight without Christ at all, they remember it kind of like a fake threat. They have never begun to imagine the horror of the reality from which they have been saved. When Paul says, remember that you are hopeless, he does not mean treat your plight without Christ like a fake threat. He means know it, feel it, be gripped by it. You have to remember to remember that you were at one time without God and without hope. And the sobering reality is that you were headed to a hopeless Christless, wrathful eternity apart from the grace of God. He wants the Gentiles in Ephesus to recall their uncircumcision and all of the lack of privilege that came with that. But why? Why is remembering so needful? Why is calling to mind and feeling our plight without Christ so vital to our spiritual health? Why do we have to remember to remember? Well, I think Ezekiel 16, the road less traveled for most of us, uh, Ezekiel 16 gives us a clue. And the, the picture here is pretty stark and startling. Uh, but the picture here is that Israel is like a baby. And this baby has been thrown out as a baby to die. God finds this baby. This baby is Israel. And, and he rescues and raises and marries and makes her beautiful. It's a picture of what God has done with every one of us who trust him. But follow along with this story from Ezekiel 16. And God is addressing Israel directly as if they were a baby. He says, you know, as for your birth on the day when you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling cloths. No, I pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you, but you were cast out on the open field, for you were abhorred on that day that you were born. And when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, live. I made you flourish like a plant of the field, and you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. Then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you also with the embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. And I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. And I put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. 
Thus you were adorned with gold and silver, and your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty, and your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. But you trusted in your beauty. You also took your beautiful jewels of my gold and of my silver, which I had given you, and made for yourself images of men. Also the bread I gave to you, I fed you with fine flour and oil and honey. You set before them for, before them for a pleasing aroma. And so it was, declares the Lord God. Here's the important part. You did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare and wallowing in your blood. If they would have only had remembered how destitute and disgusting they were, what they had been saved from, it would have saved them from gross and grave humiliation. If you go on reading in Ezekiel 16, the picture just gets bleaker and worse. You'll see just how bad it got for them because they forgot, because they didn't remember to remember what they had been saved from. But if they had just remembered to remember how desperate and helpless they were, lying in their own blood, they would not have trusted in their own beauty and boasted in their own wealth and splendor. They would have stayed humble and needy. Have you forgotten that you were dead and that God gave you life? Have you forgotten that you were just as helpless as a baby laying in its own blood? I really felt this in my bones this past week. If Jesus hadn't come, would I really be a Jewish convert right now? Partaking in the sacrificial system, attending the festivals? It's highly doubtful. I'd be, like Paul says there in verse 12, without God and without hope in this world because God's promises were made to my people. But to the Jewish people, without Jesus, I would have likely never given the Jewish faith a second thought. And probably the same case for most of us in here. Without Jesus, we were in real danger of real eternal wrath and death. And Jesus is the singular magnetic force that drew us into the kingdom, the kingdom of God. Do you really feel this morning the soul-crushing reality of the separation apart from, your separation from God apart from Christ, pulling our relationship with God and each other together? Why is he saying, remember, remember this, you were outside the covenant because you weren't a Jew, and this has devastating consequences. Paul lists five of them in verse 12. You can look at it. He says, remember, you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth, that's like just the nation of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, without hope, without God. Why does Paul want the Ephesians reminiscing about all of this hopelessly bad news? He wants them to remember how bad they had it so they can celebrate how good they have it. The call is the same for us this morning. Remember how bad we had it so we can celebrate how good we have it. And he moves from past to present. You can most clearly see that in verses 12 and then in verse 13. Verse 12, look at it. It says, at that time, you were alienated. And then verse 13, but now you've been brought near. From far to near. We received the same call this morning. Remember how bad we had it without Christ to celebrate how good we have it in Christ. So we're just now to the first point. Um, remember how bad you had it. You were vertically separated from God and horizontally hostile to the people of God. Vertically separated, horizontally hostile. This text teaches us to remember these two things in particular. Vertically separated from God, horizontally hostile to God's chosen 
people. We must do what the text says and remember our vertical separation. Remember from what we have been saved. We ought to recall our condition before Christ is what the call is. If you're like me, and many of you probably are, and you trusted Jesus as your Savior when you were pretty young, you might be tempted to think, I I don't have much to remember, right? I've only known faith. I, I have no great conversion story in my life. But Paul is writing this. He's not writing this just for those of us who have a dramatic conversion story. He is urging all Gentiles to reflect on where we would be apart from Christ. According to Paul in verse 12, being separated from Christ simply and awfully means if you're separated from Christ, it means that you are without God and without hope in this world. And so he means remember that God was once not your God. Remember that he still would not be your God apart from the gospel. And if he is not our God, he is not for us, but against us. He is our, not our justifier, but our condemner. It is not eternal life, but an eternal death that lay before us. This is what Paul wants us to remember, remember this morning. Remember how bad you had it, Christian. You were hopeless. So we are to remember to remember the entirety of our hopeless condition before God met us in Jesus. And we'll touch on this more fully next week, but the vertical hostility resulted in horizontal hostility as well. Once I was not a citizen of Israel, alienated from all those promises that God gave to the nation of Israel. It's like being a child stuck just outside the gates of Disney World, seeing all the fun and the games and the rides and the lights and smelling all the foods and the drinks and seeing all the people laughing and yet having no ability to get in there. How can I get in there? Waiting, wanting so badly to gain access, but being unable to would be so sad for that child, right? They want in so bad. That's what it feels like to be a Gentile. That's what it feels like to be us. To see all the goodness that the Jews get, but not knowing how to get in there and enjoy it all. The people on the inside of Disney, as it were, on the inside of the covenant, had it really good and they knew it. And some of them became pretty smug about it. We saw this in Peter's story. Think back to Jonah as well, who did not want to go overseas to share the good news. They were racists. And yet God used them to blow through these racial barriers with gospel hope. But before there was gospel, there was hostility. Verse 12, we are alienated from Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise. So remember how bad you had it. Number two this morning, to celebrate how good you have it. Remember how bad you had it to celebrate how good you have it. We are now vertically reconciled and horizontally unified. The difference between how bad we had it and how good we have it, the bridge between the the era of separation and the era of reconciliation, the bridge is the cross of Christ. And in this text, the bridge is drawn between verses 12 and 13. At one time you were separated from God and each other, but now, verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off can travel across the bridge and be near. You've been brought near by the blood of Christ. A few years ago, I took my family to Washington, D.C. for July the 4th, and our little family packed with literally a million other people into the mall, not like the mall where you shop type mall, but the the mall where the Washington Monument is, if you can picture it there. 
uh, we gathered in there that evening to watch this epic Washington, D.C. level fireworks show. It was all fun and games until we had to leave. Um, I'm not sure why, but they created like only two exits for a million people, one on either side of the mall. Um, two exits, and they forced a half a million people on our side out this one little tiny gate. Um, everyone was pushing and shoving and jockeying for position. It was disconcerting with four little kids in tow. Obviously, we did finally make it out safely, but it was scary for a few minutes there. Rich or poor, old or young, CEO or homeless, they were all in there. It didn't matter your status. If you wanted to get out of that and get home, you had to go through the gate, every single person. I think this is a little picture of what the blood of Christ does to us all. It gives us freedom. We get out of the penalty. It gives us access to God. And at the same time, it draws us all together. We had to come together to get out of that place because it was the only exit for us. It's the one and only viable way to reconciliation with God and with his people. Jew or Gentile, rich or poor, white or black, young or old, we all get pressed together to this one access point, the blood of Christ. And in this, we draw near to each other because we're all sort of pushing to get near to Jesus. And we all do it together, all desperate for deliverance, all finding it in the same place and thus all equally needy. There is no room for pride at the foot of the cross, which means there is no room for racism at the foot of the cross. There's no room for me to look down on you or for you to look down on me. In Jesus, the playing field is absolutely leveled. Now all the vertical and the horizontal separation has been healed at the cross. Once we were out, but now we are in. Once we were separated, but now we are integrated. Once we were strangers, but now we are citizens of the kingdom. Once we were foreigners, but now we're all family. And this is all because of Jesus, which brings us to today's conclusion and the big idea that I think encapsulates this text and all the way into next week as well. Proper rela properly relating to Jesus rightly relates us to God and others. Proper re properly relating to Jesus relates us to God rightly relates us to God and others. To say it another way, our common need for Christ demolishes hostility between Christians. Our common need for Christ demolishes, it ought to demolish, hostility among Christians. Somebody needs to go tell Twitter that right now. Our common need for Christ demolishes hostility between Christians. This really is one of the primary texts we don't want to see race where it isn't in the Bible, but we also do want to reflect it rightly when it is in the Bible. This is one of the primary texts on racial reconciliation in the scriptures. The blood of Jesus is the only way that we sinners can come to God. And therefore, the blood of Jesus is the way that God has designed for all ethnic groups to come to each other in peace and are coming to God in Christ together. In this way, Christ removes hostility between men by removing the hostility between God and men. He removes the hostility between us by removing the hostility between God and us. God's wrath is removed from us because Jesus bore the punishment. Now God is our common father, and we are in a common family by faith. And his family consists of people born from every ethnic group 
who come to God through the blood of Christ. Again, the, the horizontal, I think the, especially the horizontal glory uh, will be more fully teased out next week. But before we go this morning, let me just give you a, quick, a couple of quick applications. First, reject elitism and embrace hope. Reject elitism, which is kind of what Peter modeled for us, even aside from the racism, he just felt elitist. He felt better than. Reject elitism and embrace hope. I wonder if there are any hints of elitism in our hearts in here this morning, like Peter and his colleagues felt towards Cornelius. Is there a sense that a certain kind of person could never be saved? That person is beyond hope. Reject this. No one is beyond hope. Let's treat everyone, everyone, everyone with dignity and respect and pray for their salvation no matter how far from God right now you might feel they are. Reject elitism and embrace hope. Second, remember what it's like to be an outsider. Because Gentile Christian, you were the outsider before Jesus welcomed you. Remember to remember. So if I can say this without being sort of trite in light of this huge issue of racism that's reflected in the text here, I don't want to be trite, but I just want to encourage you. One sort of tangential application here is welcome newcomers every week as we gather here. Don't stay in your own little bubbles and groups. Look outside of that. Make a weekly aim to welcome someone you don't know. The loneliest place in the world is to be by yourself in a big crowd. Feel that for those around you who may be feeling that. Talk to the people that you don't know. Invite people of different ethnic backgrounds to church with you, <clears throat> excuse me, or to sit with you. A few months ago, I was talking with someone who attends our church who is also a minority. And he felt like he was, uh, people often avoided sitting with him until they were forced to because of space constraints. That was his perception, and his perception of that was because of his race. I, through and through, I honestly don't believe that's the case here. I know you and love you and would not think this of any of you. But I also want to say, let's never allow that to even be a question in our church. Let's never allow anyone to wonder if the color of their skin is what is marginalizing them. Third, recognize that racism is a gospel issue. It is a gospel issue. Racism is not just a social problem that is marginally related to the scriptures. Racism is not just an American problem that finds its solution outside of the scriptures. Jesus died specifically for the sake of racial reconciliation. He died that we might be brought near to God and near to each other. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation being gloriously shoved together onto the one bridge that takes us to safety, the cross of Jesus Christ. There is no room for pride when we all stand on level ground at the cross. So to speak about the peace of Christ is to speak about interracial peace. To speak about Christ's atonement is to speak about interracial atonement. To lift high the cross is to bring down the wall of racism. Racial reconciliation is tied to the very heart of the gospel. And I just say this to say we're not going to solve our current problem in America with sociology books. We're not going to solve it with education. 
I'm not saying don't read sociology. I'm not saying don't educate. I'm not saying don't learn the dark chapters of our nation's history and even where some of, it's, some of it continues. We're not going to solve it with litigation. The only way we solve racism is at the foot of the cross, where it brings us all to level ground. The only solution to this great divide is the great gospel. And surely if the gospel rendered the Jew and Gentile divide impotent, it can solve our problems in America. Finally, remember how bad you had it to celebrate how good you have it in Jesus. You once were far, but by grace, now you are near. Will you pray with me? God, thanks for meeting with us, even in complicated texts that are uncomfortable and challenging. Uh, Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for giving us the entirety of the New Testament so we're not left to wonder what is meant by Ephesians 2. Thanks for Acts and giving it to us to illuminate what is happening in other parts of the Bible. We're just, we're grateful for that. I pray that we would live in realization that our vertical peace has been won and our horizontal unity has been won as well at the cross. Amen.